By now, for our, our text today, the purpose for while we are gathered, like any text, it's important to understand the context sur- surrounding it. And at the end of chapter 4 of the book of Exodus, Moses went before the elders and the people of Israel, and he said everything that the Lord had given him to say. Laid it all out there, did exactly what God had told him to say, and what happened? The people believed. And as a result of their belief, what happened? They began to worship. And that is the, the, what, what belief in God and the belief in the promises of God is intended to do. It is intended to lead us to do worship. Then in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh. And they said exactly what God had given them to say, just like they were told to do. And what happened there? Pharaoh did not believe, just as God had promised. So right here, everything is going to plan. And then as a result of Pharaoh's unbelief, even greater affliction now becomes upon the people of Israel. And the moment that their affliction increases, what happens? Moses and the people of Israel enter into a crisis of belief. They begin doubting God and the promises of God. Moses turning to the Lord at the end of chapter 5 and, and asking, Oh Lord, why, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even ever send me? He begins to question God. And I, I dare say most of us have been there at one time or another. And if you haven't, you likely will be. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you've been praying for the Lord to free you from a particular sin in your life. And as much as you pray and as much as you try that particular sin, the temptation of that sin has, has not left. And all you can think to ask is why? Or maybe, maybe you're, you're here this morning and, and there's, a, there's a cloud of anxiety, a cloud of uh, affliction, a cloud of depression just hanging, hovering over you that just does not seem to lift. And you find yourself again asking, why, God? I'm praying, I'm asking, I'm, I'm doing, and why? Or, or maybe your desires, which are good, godly desires, don't seem to be coming to fruition. Everyone around you, it seems that they are, but yours are not. And again, you're asking and you're wondering why. If that's you today, I can't think of a more appropriate and helpful text than this one. As we look at Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. We're only going to look at eight verses today. But God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. And they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. 
So Moses and Israel are experiencing a crisis of belief. Affliction comes, doubts surface, anxiety then increases. And they start questioning God and they start questioning the purposes of God. And whether you've been walking with the Lord for years or whether it's been a a relatively short amount of time, you are not exempt from this happening to you. Feeling like you, you, you are on the mountaintop spiritually. Things are going well, better than they've ever have been. Worship is great. Fellowship is great. Bible study is great. All these things are great. And then a moment of affliction comes, whatever that may be. And everything turns on a dime. It changes. Mountaintop experience now seems like a distant memory. And like Moses, you find yourself questioning God. Why? Why? And this is what God says in response to Moses in verse 1. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Then he tells the people in verse seven, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The Lord's response to Moses and to the people is you will see and you will know. And what we're looking at today is how. How they will see and how they will know. And it starts with God saying to Moses in verse two, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Which brings us to point number one. Trusting in the sufficiency of God starts with knowing God. And what we see all throughout the scripture is that when God begins a work of salvation, he always begins by making himself known to his people. He wants his people to see him and to know him for who he is. He wants his people to see him and to know him for who he is cannot faithfully face and endure the trials that will come without knowing God for who he truly is. And that goes for Moses and it goes for Israel and it goes for us. To faithfully persevere in the faith, to continue in the faith in the midst of trials, we must know who God truly is. Think about it. If I'm telling you to trust me, we're sitting down and we're in a conversation, however it may be, and I'm like, Trust me. What's needed from, from you in that spot? To know that I am trustworthy, right? And the only way that you're going to know that I am trustworthy is for you to, to know me or to have substantial evidence and credibility that's coming into play. But you need to know that I am trustworthy if you are to trust me when I say, trust me. And so what God is doing here is he's teaching and preparing his people to follow him. He's teaching them and preparing them to trust him. And in doing so, he's pointing them directly back to who he is. He's pointing them back to his character, back to his person. It's like a parent saying, I'm dad, I'm mom to a child. There's a lot that we're saying in that context, is there not? There's a lot that's loaded in there of provision and sufficiency and and care and love and all of those different things. There's a lot packed into God's declaration, I am the Lord, from creator to sustainer. He's saying so many things there when he says, I am the Lord. And any time in scripture that we see God say, I or I am, followed by whatever comes next, we need to take notice. It's a moment that he's looking to teach us and we need to be willing to learn and to submit to what he's teaching us. He's teaching us something about himself. It's like when we're talking to somebody else and we're saying, I am these things, I like these things. We're revealing truths about ourselves to them. 
Well, that's what God is doing here. We even see in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, he goes, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. All these different I am statements revealing truths about Christ and specifically what Christ is teaching us in the Gospel of John is that to, to know or to be known by God, well, we must believe in Christ. We must believe in, in Christ the Son. No one comes to the Father except through him. And what we have here in verses two through five are four such teaching statements from the Lord, declarations reminding Moses, reminding us who God is. Looking first at verse three there, with the Lord saying, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, if you're reading through the text and you've been listening and following along with other sermons, you're thinking, okay, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them? What does he mean? Like, does this mean that Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob didn't know the name of the Lord? Well, the answer there is no. That's not what that means. And here's why. Because the name of the Lord, we see it being known and used multiple times throughout the book of Genesis, even as early as Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. And if you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. I'm going to give you a brief moment to turn back there. In fact, we're going about to do several different passages of, of turning, getting ready there. Another reason I would encourage you to kind of bring your Bibles with you if you're not already. You can follow along on your phone if you have it. Um, but Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, where it says, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now notice there the spelling of the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's indicating that in the original language, the personal name of God is being used here. All the way back to Genesis chapter four, right after the fall, we're, we're, we're seeing the name of the Lord being used here. And in Gen then in Genesis chapter 12, verse eight, we're not gonna read it, but you can flip over there and take note, jot it down in your notes. We see Abraham building an altar and then calling upon the name of who? Calling upon the name of the Lord. Again, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Calling upon the personal name of God. And that's just two quick examples. We can continue on through the book of Genesis. But with all that understanding, it means that they did know the name of the Lord. But then we have to ask, okay, what does it mean by, by, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them? But what does this mean? And so I'm glad you asked. It means they didn't know the full significance of his name. They, they know the name, can call out the name, can pronounce the name, but don't really know what it means for God to be Lord. They don't know what it means for him to be Yahweh. I think of it as a child who was adopted into a home at an older age. You have a child coming into a home and it doesn't take them long to know your name. They, they know specific facts about you. They, they know those type of things. They know certain things. They, they even understand that you begin to be basically sufficient in meeting their, their basic needs of putting food on the table and, and those type of things. But it takes time for them really to, to learn what it means for you to be mom and dad and to, to love them 
to be the ones that, that they know that you love them and, and are caring for them. There's a progressive growing in that relationship. This morning, Zach and Rachel brought baby Sayla with them for the very first time to, to service. Those first time parent type of things where you're, you're, you're waiting that full three months because they don't want everybody kind of hovering over them and breathing on them and you know, getting baby sick and all that kind of stuff. And, but she's finally made her arrival here, right? She's come, praise the Lord. And with that, baby Sayla is a reminder for us. All the little babies are. Baby Sayla cannot pronounce Zach and Rachel's name. They cannot, she cannot say mommy or daddy. She doesn't know any of those type of things in the, in the verbal type of sense. But what is she learning right now? That mommy and daddy are sufficient in meeting her basic needs to care for her and to love on her. The same with any young child. It's a progressive learning as she grows of what it means to call them mom and dad. But look with me again at the first part of verse three and the Lord saying, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. It's a beginning to learn of who God is. What does this mean that he appeared to them as God Almighty? What does it mean that God appeared to them this way as El Shaddai? It means he appeared to them as the God who is sufficient. As we, as we see all throughout the book of Genesis, how the Lord is progressively and continuously revealing his sufficiency to his people. Again, like a parent caring for a child, proving their sufficiency over and over and over through their provision and care. Gradually learning more and more, we, we learn more about who God is. But right here in Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've learned of God's sufficiency and he's proved it. And let's look at four examples of such. One being the Lord is sufficient in meeting our personal inadequacies. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse one, where we have the childless and really old Abraham becoming the father of many nations. Right? Genesis chapter 17, verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, I think that would classify as pretty old for a first time father or father in this case, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. The Lord teaching and comforting Abraham by saying, I am sufficient in overcoming your infertility. The reminder to each of us here today that no matter what our personal inadequacy may be or that we're facing, that the Lord is sufficient to overcome. And even if he chooses not to, which is not what we want to experience, not what we want to see, even if he chooses not to answer our prayers the way that we would like, he remains perfectly sufficient. It's a hard lesson to learn. To have to go to that point of pouring out our prayers and realizing, okay, my prayers may not be answered the way I would like. My dreams may not come to the fruition that I would like, but God is sufficient. God is enough. Christ is enough. He will hold me fast. He will hold me strong even when this world does not seem to make sense. We also see how the Lord is sufficient in our times of need. You flip on over to Genesis chapter 43, verse 14. And remember Jacob, the father of Joseph. Joseph being the son that he thought was, was dead and gone. Now Jacob is sending his sons, the other sons, back to Egypt because they'd been there before. They had stood before Joseph asking for food, wanting to buy food in the midst of the famine. Joseph recognizes his brothers and he does what? 
he sends them back to their father Jacob saying, bring me your son Benjamin. Now, can you imagine Jacob here having lost his son already, thinking so anyway, and now he's having to send his youngest son Benjamin and other sons with him. And he says in a prayer as they go in verse 14, may God Almighty, may El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother Benjamin. Now, unbeknownst to Jacob, he's sending his sons into the power of Joseph. Joseph is the man that he speaks of here in his prayer. Second in command all over, over all of Egypt. Joseph being the man who, who God sent before them to preserve life and care for them in their time of need. But Jacob doesn't know any of this. He's not aware of any of this. So what is Jacob doing? He is resting in the sufficiency of God to provide in his time of need. And what is God doing? Proving his sufficiency. So so is the case in the details of our lives. Whether we realize it or not, God is showing us that he is a sufficient God to meet our needs. We look at the Lord as sufficient to overcome our concerns of the unknown. We deal with that a lot, don't we? the concerns of the unknown, where a lot of our anxiety comes from of not knowing how today is gonna play out or tomorrow is gonna play out. But we flip over to Genesis chapter 48, verse three, just a few pages over, when Jacob is telling Joseph of when he left Canaan for the the unknown future in, in Egypt. So now Jacob is with Joseph in Egypt. He's coming closer to the end of his life. And he looks at Joseph and he says, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now after that, Jacob in faith left Canaan and went to Egypt, trusting in the sufficiency of the Lord. He didn't know how God's promises was going to unfold. He didn't know how this land that they had sojourned in and been and lived in was going to one day be kept and promised. But he left on the strength of God's word, trusting in the sufficiency of God, God promising to be with him and to bring him back. Now, one more here. The Lord is sufficient in our suffering. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, verse 22 where Joseph, having suffered slavery, false accusations, imprisonment, rose to be second in command over all of Egypt. And Jacob, just before his death, he blesses Joseph with these words, starting in verse 22. These are words from a father to a son. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him. Now pause there. Who do you think these archers were? His brothers, Potiphar's wife, all other trials that he went through. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, but the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. We could keep reading here, but 
what we see being expressed from a father in hindsight to his son, looking at his son who's experienced this great suffering and tragedy, like 20 plus years of just suffering and tragedy, is the declaration in looking back upon his life, the Lord has been sufficient. The Lord has been sufficient. Jacob telling Joseph with that fatherly affection here, your life didn't go the way either you or I had planned. I can see tears coming down the face. Life's not going the way we planned. But God has been more more than sufficient in his plans for you, Joseph. Church, that holds true for you as well today. God has been more than sufficient in his plans in your life and will continue to be more than sufficient in his plans for your life. And this is the same God that we have gathered to worship today. This is the same God that we serve and to follow and believe. He has not changed and will not change, which is exactly what he's telling Moses here. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what he's saying. He says, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, as sufficient. But what they never saw or knew, that Moses and Israel are about to see and to know, is how the Lord is sufficient in keeping his promises. Remember, God made his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob that they were going to be the father of many nations, that they were going to have a land that they were going to call their own, and that this people and this place were, were going to be a light into the world, a blessing to all the peoples but they never saw this fulfilled. But now Moses and Israel will in ways that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never did. As the Lord continues in verse four, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. The land they dwelled in all those years in Canaan, but they never owned. You can jot this down as a little note. I believe it's Genesis chapter 23. There's one little spot where the only thing that they ever owned in Canaan was a burial plot, a tomb. You think about all this time of wandering in faith, nomads in a land, and saying, one day you're going to own this. Every bit of it's going to be yours. I think of the correlation of that one tomb that they bought, and it's a tomb that's going to make those promises come true for us, a tomb that is empty. Oh, church, in the midst of slavery and affliction, all this seems like an impossibility. In the midst of our afflictions, the promises of God can seem like an impossibility, but our God is sufficient. Verse 5, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. The Lord telling Moses and us that he is sufficient in hearing our cries. He hears our prayers. Yet even those times when we feel like he's not answering our prayers, he's saying, I hear your cries. And I will answer them in my way and in my timing for my purposes and for my glory. I hear. And the last part of verse 5, I have remembered my covenant. He is sufficient in fulfilling his promises in his time and in his way. It's not like his promises have ever slipped his mind. God has not forgotten his promises. Rather, it's now is the time to put them into effect. And that brings us to point number two. Trusting in the sufficiency of God is essential to believing God. That's what what the Lord is looking to establish here. He says, I am the Lord. And he follows that with four past tense reminders of his sufficiency. I appeared, I also established, 
I have heard and I have remembered. Has proven his sufficiency over and over and over again. He has not changed and will not change. So take all of that understanding and you look at verse 6 and how he tells Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel. The therefore being the key word here. And for that matter, anytime you see the word therefore, you always need to ask, what is the therefore therefore? It's pointing us back to what has just been said. So you look and say, okay, what's he wanting to do? He's wanting to direct our attention. He's about to say something in verses six through eight, but he was saying, therefore, based on everything I've said in verses two through five, based on who I am, based upon my sufficiency, based upon my never failing, always there and forever love for you, here's what I'm gonna tell you. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, and what follows is a seven-part promise rooted and grounded in the sufficiency of God. Starting in verse six with the Lord promising, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Notice the very first two words there, I will. The Lord promises he will do this. Not, not Pharaoh, not Moses, not us and our struggles. The Lord is saying, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. Promising to we who are in Christ, I will bring you out of the domain of darkness. I will do this 100% the work of the Lord. Now for promise two, we stay here in verse six with the Lord saying, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. The Lord promising his children will be slaves to Pharaoh no longer. It will no longer be the case. The Lord promising us through the gospel that we who trust in Christ will be slaves to sin and death no more. We will be delivered from our bondage. Whether we, we feel that or realize that in its totality or not, we will be delivered from our bondage. And now notice how there's no maybes here. This is how might, there's only certainty. I will deliver you. Also the reminder that God is the deliverer of God's people. Now continuing in verse six with another promise, the Lord promising, and I will redeem you. And there's a reason this promise is made. There's a reason that the language is so specific here. And it's different from bringing out or even delivering. There's an intimacy that is found with the word redeem. It's not a distant and disconnected. It's a kinsman redeemer kind of redemption. Now I know the story of Boaz and Ruth is nowhere on the minds of these early Israelites. But that's the type of picture that we should be thinking of here. The intimacy and love of God that he has for his people. The intimacy and love of Christ for his bride. You remember Boaz, if you're familiar with this story, redeeming the widowed Moabite Ruth, taking her as his bride, making her a widow no more, caring for her every need. If you're not familiar with this story, I would point you back to our season of Advent this past Christmas. We walked through this book together. But we're reminded in that beautiful story of redemption, this widow being brought into the family and every need being cared for, that God isn't just bringing Israel out of Egypt, though he is, but he's lifting her burdens. Not just delivering them from, from slavery, though he is, and praise the Lord, they're slaves no more. But he's also redeeming them and claiming them as his own. It's a picture of adoption that we see throughout the gospel. He's setting his affection upon them. And how is he doing that? With an outstretched arm 
with great acts of judgment. And it's not hard to see the gospel connection here. For how are we who believe in Christ brought out? How are we delivered and redeemed from our bondage to sin and death? Through a great act of judgment. But not a judgment levied against an unrighteous Pharaoh, but against a judgment levied against the righteous Son of God. But that's not the only promise we see. He continues forth in verse 7. The Lord promises, I will take you to be my people. Notice the language there. I will take you, Israel, who have doubted and questioned and all the, I will take you to be my people. Oh, church, it's the reminder of Ephesians chapter two, that we who were once far off, having no hope, have been brought near. How? By our works? By our righteousness? No. How? By the blood of Christ. And that's still not all. We see, continuing in verse 7, the Lord promising, and I will be your God. Such intimacy in this language. I will be your God. And it's the same promise that we, that we are to rest in from Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. You can jot it down to look at later. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Such a promise. Again, church, what we have here in verse seven isn't just a foreshadowing of the first of the 10 commandments, but a foreshadowing of eternity. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I will be your God now and forever. Again, it's not all. The verse eight, the Lord promises, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And who is the Lord swearing upon here? Himself, all of his character, all of his attributes, all of his sufficiency, all of who he is. He's saying, I took an oath to give this land to my people. I'm gonna fulfill it. I am going to bring them into this land. The reminder again to us that this place is not our home. Jesus telling his followers in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, that one day he will issue this summons to us. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And lastly, continuing in verse eight, the Lord promising, I will give it to you for your possession. Followed by him saying once again, I am the Lord. Meaning our faith is intended to rest in the promises of God because they are fixed and they are sure. They are unchanging. They're not going anywhere. They will come to fruition. But now look at verse nine. After hearing all this from the Lord, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And it's easy to read verse nine and be like, what in the world? How, how, how is this possible? How, how could you hear all of this from God? All of his promises and all of his attributes and all of these things and not believe. How? But at the same time, how many times has that been us? How many times has this been us? Maybe this is you today. 
You're struggling to believe and to trust the promises of God. You're hearing these promises, just like the people of Israel heard these promises. And just like the people of Israel, you're having difficulty listening because of your broken spirit and your harsh slavery, your broken spirit and your current affliction. You're here this morning, you're going through the motions, trying. But if you're being completely transparent, you're demoralized, you're broken. And if that's you today, understand you're not unique. It's exactly what we see in the text today. It's exactly what we have. And this is coming from a people who at the end of chapter four, if you remember, were believing and they were worshiping, but not anymore. And the temptation for you right now, even if you don't want to, is to quit. The temptation is to give up, to to walk away because you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And you won't see the light at the end of the tunnel if you walk away. So while God is telling Moses what he's telling him here, don't walk away. Remember, remember at the close of chapter five, Moses himself is in a bad spot. He's in a difficult place of doubt and questioning, even calling God's actions evil. How could you, God? But how does God respond? With With a stiff and heavy fist? With a heavy hand coming down upon him? No. It was grace and mercy from a loving father drawing his prodigal son home. You shall see. You shall know that what I will do. You shall see and you shall know that I am the Lord. There's grace and there's love and there's patience from God's response here. And maybe that's your struggle today. You know the Lord. You believe in the Lord. You mentally will affirm that he is sovereign, that he is loving, that he is powerful, and he will do everything that he has promised. You say, I I believe those things. But in this moment, you don't see and know how he is these things for you. And you're struggling. And here's where I, I would love to give you seven steps that would make it all okay. But it doesn't work that way. Instead, I point you back to God and the promises of God. I point you back over and over to even the text that we have just looked at. I am and I will. God telling us who he is. I want you to see and I want you to know how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they they knew the Lord. They knew him as sufficient. They knew him as one who made promises. Yet they didn't know him like Moses was able to know him as the keeper of those promises. But neither did Moses have the ability to know him like we who are trusting Christ as our only hope in life and death or have the ability to know him. As we know the one in whom all these promises find their yes and amen. So to close, I direct your attention to a passage that will be on the screen, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such beautiful truths that we have to be reminded of over and over and over again. Speaking personally here, I know there are times when we just don't have the words to say. We don't even know how to pray what we're wanting to pray. And that's one of the beautiful things about really rich gospel sound songs. Something about the human spirit that I think the Lord has placed within us, a love for music. Even for a guy like me who can't carry a tune in a bucket, there's a love for music. There's a comfort that can come from a song. And a song that I have come to know and to love in recent years is one that was called, He Will Hold Me Fast. Because it's laced with gospel truth. Just kind of looking over the lyrics of the song, just telling us it's a cry that there will be times when, when, the, when, our, when we will fear that our faith will fail. Have you ever been there? The spot where you're like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue on in this. But we have to remind ourselves that we're not, our faith will not continue because of our work or because of our efforts. It's because Christ will hold me fast. Christ will do this. There will be times when the tempter would prevail and that sin that we've been fighting for so long that we think we maybe finally have it licked, we find ourselves diving right back into it. And thinking, no. And we're reminding that our identity is not found in our works, but in Christ, and he will hold me fast. We cannot keep hold of through life's fearful path, all the uncertainties, all the challenges. Our love even begins to grow cold, but he will hold me fast. He will hold me secure. He will hold me strong. I need to be reminded of these truths. I need to be reminded of these things all the time that my God's promises are true. Oh, for my Savior loves me so. Even when I have trouble loving myself, he loves me so and he will hold me fast. A reminder that those he saves are his delight. Take time today, even as you sing, church, take time as you meditate upon God's word this afternoon to remember that if you are in Christ, you are the delight of Christ. Christ will hold you fast. You, me, broken, weary, feeling as though the world is collapsing upon us. We are precious in his holy sight and he will hold us fast. He will not let this soul be lost even though we're wandering. His promises shall last. How all these promises that we see made to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob? How are these promises that we see made to Moses? How are these promises that we see made to us fulfilled? And how will we know that they will last? Because they were bought by him at such a cost. And he will hold me fast. 
For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Oh, church, justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Church would long for that day. Long for that day. But until that day comes, continue to rest in the Christ who promises to hold us fast. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for holding us fast and secure. Though it feels at times that the tempter would prevail. Thank you for reminding us over and over and over through your word that Christ is the one who will hold us fast. Thank you for the reminder and the reality that we who are in Christ will persevere until the end. And not because we've got it all together, but because your promises are sure. And we know your promises are sure because they find their yes and amen in Christ. So help us to rest in Christ today, to trust Christ to hold us fast today. And let us respond in faith as we sing these truths together as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.